Um, go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Kings 18. Um, this is uh, perhaps my favorite lesson of the three that we're doing tonight. We're going to be talking about Elijah, and we're actually going to be covering uh, two different stories tonight. One of them that is extremely well known uh, and is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, the other one that is uh, perhaps less well-known uh, and is quickly becoming um, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Um, so I hope that uh, I hope that you guys uh, get something out of this tonight as well. Um, so the context for this story is that uh, Israel is now divided and... Um, the uh, king in Israel, the northern part, is Ahab. Uh, Jezebel is his queen, and certainly you know that uh, they are, you know, one of the worst pairs of leaders that Israel ever had. Um, Israel is completely mired in sin. Uh, idol worship is... Uh, you know, we get the impression that it is near universal at this point in, uh, in Israel's journey. And Elijah has been sent as God's prophet. Uh, God told Elijah some time ago that there would be a drought in Israel, and it has now been going on for three years. So that is where we open chapter 18. If you're just coming in, we're in 1 Kings 18 tonight. All right, so starting in verse 1. Later on, in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, Go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Meanwhile, the famine had become very severe in Samaria. All right, now jump down to verse 16. <clears throat> So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come, and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I've made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who were supported by Jezebel. Now, you got to be thinking from Ahab's perspective that uh, th this has got to be a no-lose game here. He's asked for the entire nation of Israel and uh, the 400 prophets of, 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah to all assemble on the top of Mount Carmel. And we got this one guy who is my thorn in the flesh, and uh, you know, I, I don't know what he wants to show me, but I got all the firepower I need on my side, and he's the lone gunman. So what could go wrong? <laughs> so Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. What do you think the people were thinking at this point? Passive aggressiveness. Of the people? Of the people. Okay, how so? Don't say anything. Let's see how this turns out. <laughs> okay. I'm not committing anything. There's, this, is, this is risk. It's high risk either way. I'm just not going to say anything. Okay, maybe so. <clears throat> Huh? The general pagan view is you get you get along with all the gods. That you were not, you would not offend. Now here you're choosing between two gods. That's a bad deal. You know, so we talked about last week that you know we were last week we were in Judges. This week we're in First Kings. So you know there there's a lot of water that's passed under that bridge by now. But we talked about how Israel was a very confused nation in terms of their relationship with God and what they believed about God. But um, I think 
that Israel, that they were convicted to some degree by what Elijah had to say to them. They, they kind of have an idea of what might be coming. Not exactly. I don't think they know exactly what's coming. But I think they have an idea that Elijah might be up to something. Because they've heard about Elijah. I mean, this isn't Elijah's first day on the prophet job. Um, and so I think they have an idea of what might be coming. And they still kind of, sort of, maybe believe in God. But they're very confused. And so I think they're afraid to say anything at this point. I think we we tend to be faced with similar things. I mean, because they're they know they should be on God's side. I mean, who shouldn't be? But yet they they don't want to commit because the powers that be are on Baal's side and look really bad for you. Just say, go God, and you're the only one besides <laughs> doing that. And, and yet we do that many times a day. We know we should be on God's side, but because of political pressure or whatever, we take kind of a quiet approach to things because we don't want to rock the boat. It's a great point. How many times are we silent when we could say something? I also didn't want to make Jezebel mad. Because they already seen what she can do. Yeah. We're actually going to talk about that here in just a little bit. Okay. okay. Uh, verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Uh, no, I'm going to wait to make that point. Uh, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, You go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it, and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us! But there was no reply of any kind. They danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. I love this part of the story. <laughs> You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming, or he's relieving himself. <laughs> Maybe he's away on a trip, or is asleep and needs to be wakened. So they shouted louder, and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that, that had been torn down. So notice that uh, as the day has gone by, they have, they have been so wild that they have completely destroyed the altar that Elijah was supposed to uh, use and now he's going to have to rebuild it just to give you an idea of the amount of chaos that has ensued over the previous hours then he said fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering in the wood after they had done this he said do the same thing again and when they were finished he said now do it a third time. So they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. So, all right, so let's look at what's happening here. So uh, nothing, a grand total of nothing has happened to the sacrifice to Baal. Now they, Elijah told them, okay, look, you guys go and pick two bulls and you can choose first so I want to take this opportunity to point out that the sacrifice that Elijah got was most likely inferior did not meet the standard that God had set for sacrifices then on top of that Elijah said digs a trench around the altar and says pour a bunch of water on it. Now do it again. 
Now do it again. Now we've asked, the, the contest is we're waiting for somebody's God to strike the altar with fire from above and consume the sacrifice. Elijah is wanting to point out here just, uh, he's wanting to put himself at such a disadvantage that this has got to be obvious. First of all, I'm starting with an inferior sacrifice that God would not even accept to begin with. And then I'm going to pour water on it so that it's not, this thing can't even catch fire. Not possible for this thing to catch fire. Uh, and then let's see what happens. So at the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. All right. So let's, uh, let's talk about a few takeaways. What are some things that you see in that story? Elijah's obvious faith to be so miraculous. Yes. I'm glad you pointed that out. That is going to be very important as we go on. What else? He took, he took away all possibilities of chance. There was no way that lightning could have come down and, and set it on fire. He took away all, every possibility except for God. And it not only caught fire. I mean, it didn't like fizzle and then, you know, eventually 30 minutes later it caught fire. I mean, it was immediate and it was all-consuming. No doubt. Anybody else? I wonder if these uh, 450 uh, prophet or uh, priest of Baal, if one of them started thinking, I got flags popping up here. Are we going down the Primrose Lane? Are, are we getting set up? So I, I, it seemed to me that, that they, they put as much faith in Baal as Elijah put in, in the Lord. Yeah which is astounding to me, considering that Baal never did anything. Yeah, absolutely. All right, here's the three takeaways that I, I see. First of all, idols are nothing. Um, but God is almighty. Turn over to Habakkuk chapter 2. We'll uh, start in verse 18. What good is an idol carved by man, or a cast image that deceives you? How foolish to trust in your own creation, a god that can't even talk? What sorrow awaits you who say to wooden idols, wake up and save us? To speechless stone images you say, rise up and teach us. Can an idol tell you what to do? They may be overlaid with gold and silver, but they are lifeless inside. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So let's go back to 1 Kings. And uh, the uh, if you look at the prophets of Baal, what did they do? They're not silent. They are not silent. They, they slash, they scream, and they, uh, and they dance. And a grand total of nothing happens. Uh, but Habakkuk tells us that the first act of worship is for us to be silent because God just might have something that he wants to tell us. 
Number two, and this is this is really important. I, I, this, is, this hits home with me. God has little patience for those that take a leadership role and lead his people away from him. If you look back at verse 40, go back to 1 Kings, it says, Then Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. All 850 of them. Uh, killed them. No mercy. Uh, God has very little patience for people who take a leadership role and lead his people astray. That is uh, it's very sobering for, uh, some, for somebody who stands <laughs> up here as one of your elders. Number three. Um, God will sometimes try to get our attention in a big way. Look at verse 37. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. Israel was at a point in their spiritual journey that they were completely <clears throat> bankrupt. Yet God still was trying to call them back to him. And, uh, you know, sometimes if you can't get them to work the, any other way, the sledgehammer is the, is the best method. And that's what God used here. Uh, so sometimes God will try to get our attention in a different way. All right, any other thoughts? Well, the 400 prophets of Asherah were mentioned early on, but I don't recall them being mentioned again. They really weren't. This was uh, The contest was really between uh, God and the prophets of Baal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just yeah. wondering why you said that uh, Elijah's sacrifice was subpar. Are you just saying that because he let the prophets of Baal choose the first oxen? Or? So, uh, well... All right, so I should clarify that I don't know. It okay. doesn't specify. But what it, what it does say is that he told uh, the prophets of Baal to choose two bulls, and they could choose which one first. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, they didn't have the same standards that God had. So uh, they, they could have chosen an inferior bull. They could have tried to... Uh, they could have tried to tank his sacrifice and intentionally give him uh, an inferior bull. Or it could have been a perfect sacrifice. It, it doesn't say. But I, I would say it's likely that it was inferior. Richard? And I also pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yes. which reminds them where they, who they belong to, you know, where, who God is, the history of all that. Yeah, that is a great point. Yep, done. It's interesting, uh, 37, he says that you are turning their hearts uh, back again. It was not the act of Elijah or anybody there except God. It, God was action, and he was the one who made the change well so it was God who did the action but those people would still have to repent and go back to God and God's it's obvious that they did it is they they didn't let any of the prophets escape yeah at, at least that day we, we don't know what happened 24 hours later right it's interesting in the in the New Testament, that uh, the scripture that says that no one can come to the Lord unless the Lord draws him. He is called. Mm -hmm. So, 
I'd like for Jeff to explain that verse for me. <laughs> I'll take Jeff off the hook. We don't have time for that. <laughs> All right. Turn the page to chapter 19. All right. So Elijah has just had his best God moment ever. He walks in with confidence makes fun of the prophets of Baal and all their idiocy, then calls on God to spontaneously combust a drowned and likely inferior sacrifice, and then uh, the prophets of Baal are slaughtered. But there's a plot twist at the beginning of the very next chapter, starting in verse 1. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the God strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. So Elijah's just had his best God moment ever, and Jezebel breathes in his direction, and he starts running for his life. Um, and he not only runs away, he runs all the way from Mount Carmel to Mount Horeb. All right, trivia time. Mount Horeb goes by another name. What was it? Sinai. That's right. All right. Trivia question number two. Anybody know how far it was from Hor from Carmel to Sinai? Long, long way. <laughs> <laughs> it's a day's journey. Oh, it was more than that. So Carmel was way up here in the north part of Israel, in the northernmost part, uh, what I believe is considered Samaria, up on the Mediterranean Sea. Sinai was way down in the south on uh, the red, by the Red Sea. Uh, took uh, Elijah 40 days to get there, running all the way. You know, it was like Forrest Gump running across the country. Uh, why do you think Elijah ran all the way from Mount Carmel to Mount Sinai? 40 days to get there. He's running for his life. He's running for his life. It's a long way to run. Yeah, did he have to go that far? He had, just, he had just witnessed God's presence with fire burning up there, and, and then he takes off and lets a woman chase him. <laughs> yes, sir. I, I kind of want to speak in beard, uh, Elijah's defense. Okay. Because... Um, Jezebel, she, she meant what she said. She had already killed hundreds and hundreds of prophets that were possibly, they, they weren't maybe quite as influential as Elijah was, but they were, you know, she had already killed hundreds of prophets. So this is no empty threat that he's fleeing from. Oh, absolutely not. Let's go ahead. And I, I, I mean, but at the same time, God just set down fire to, mm -hmm. you know, lick up the book. Right? <laughs> I mean, I, I know it's a threat, and I know it's, you know, like against his own person, but I just had his best God moment. <laughs> but as a human, I know what it's like to also know I can't take one more thing. And even though I have seen God's power, I've seen his provision, you know, it's like, really? One more thing? One more? Yep. Jeff? Let's draw an analogy here. Peter in the boat. <laughs> okay. Call me out that I can walk on water too, boss. All right. Yeah. Walk on water. He took his eyes off Jesus. Yeah. Elijah let Jezebel take his eyes off the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. The Lord opened the Red Sea, and 10 minutes later, they're building a golden calf. Yeah. yeah maybe 10 minutes later. <laughs> maybe that's my interpretation. As you're reading, it's only 10 minutes. Yeah, right. It only takes you 10 minutes to get there. Yeah. Don? Well, you, there's. Similarity here between Elijah and David. Okay. David spent all of his younger life running from King Saul, and yet he had been anointed 
why then was David running from Saul when Samuel had anointed him to be king? Yeah, good point. So here's what I think. I think uh, Sinai has long been known as the mountain of God. I think that's why he was running to Sinai. Um, so clearly he was scared. You know, he's just had his best God moment ever. Jezebel breathes in his direction, and uh, now he fears for his life, and he, he wants to go be with God. Um, so, question, is Sinai still under her jurisdiction? I don't really know, Kay. I don't know. I'm thinking that for South, he may have gone into, out of her jurisdiction. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, she couldn't reach you, but still. I've actually tried looking for maps uh, of that stuff, and they really don't even know where Sinai is, to be honest. Um, and that makes it hard to get an accurate map to figure out where stuff was and where the, uh, the county lines were. All right, uh, jump down to verse 9. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And he said it just like that. <laughs> I mean, can't you just hear the complaining and the fear? He sounds kind of like Jonah. He does. Yeah. Yep. There is a lot of Jonah in, in that. Yeah. I appreciate that he's honest. Yeah. I, you know, and we talked about that uh, some last week, Georgia, uh, that God wants us to be honest with him. He could take it. So, um, all right. Now, yeah, Alan? I think, I think a lesson we can, I draw from this is how important it is to have the church because. Elijah felt alone. I mean, he says, I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. And so when we feel alone, uh, it's easy, I think, for Satan to take advantage of that and attack us in, in that. So I think that's why it's important to have other believers around us so that we can encourage one another and build each other up. Yep, I agree with that. Um, all right. Now, the problem with uh, reading scripture is uh, that it's sometimes difficult to determine uh, <clears throat> what tone of voice was used or how a sentence was inflected. <clears throat> so <clears throat> let's take the question that God asked Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? And that could be inflected in a lot of different ways. It could be, what are you doing here, Elijah? Or what are you doing here, Elijah? Or what are you doing here, Elijah? Or maybe it's, what are you doing here, Elijah? Uh, God here is saying, you were just up on Mount Carmel, and now you've run all the way here to Mount Sinai. Why did you do that? Uh, I don't think things worked out for Elijah quite the way that he had intended. You know, after that whole Mount Carmel incident, uh, you know, I, after God consumed that sacrifice, I and uh, you know, Elijah's clapping his hands and going victory, and I think he thought that uh, we would kill all the prophets of Baal and all the children of Israel would return to God and Yahweh worship would be reestablished as the only worship in Israel, and it didn't quite happen that way. Instead, Jezebel threatens him and he runs off. Um, so, as an aside, how, how many times do we feel like that? And we've kind of talked about that a little bit tonight. But, you know, we can see the very presence of God. We can see God working in our lives in a powerful way. And then it seems like just a few days later when, uh, you know, we're in the pit of despair. And where is God? I can't feel his presence. Uh, and so... I see that as a lesson from Elijah that we can take as well because Elijah didn't allow that to define him. Elijah took the lesson that God is about to give him 
and uh, and went and got back about the, the business. Um, Jake. I think you see the, the similar deal with the apostles after the crucifixion. Oh, yeah. Elijah <laughs> thought the kingdom was coming back, and the earthly kingdom was coming back, and it was on, and he knew what was about to happen, and then his expectation didn't happen. The apostles just knew that Jesus was going to bring back the earthly kingdom of Israel. And then when that didn't happen, they freaked out and they went and hid kind of like he did. Yeah. Um, they had this expectation and sometimes God meets those expectations and sometimes he does something completely different. Yeah. Jeff? If you look at it, that's a rhetorical question. God knew why Elijah was there. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so why did he ask for why, why are you here? A lot of times, it's kind of like when your when your kid does something wrong, you say, "Why did you do it?" Uh, you right. Know, you want them to think through this. And I think that's what what God is having Elijah do is to kind of to step back and, and take a look at just about see what what the whole situation is, and, and maybe you'll see that what you did was not exactly the right thing. Yeah. And Elijah basically tells him. Uh, I just came to be with you in your holy place. One, so, one, one other point here. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you may get to it, I don't know. This is Elijah's uh, last stand. It's coming to it, yeah. He's, he's because you'll know, see it somewhere in this chapter, if I remember right. It is. Elijah, go find yourself yep, in your placement. Yep, it is at the end of this chapter. So there's another point in here that, that, that when, we, when we may do what God wants, but we start thinking about what we want to do and we're no longer a viable tool for God, he's going to put us back up on the shelf. Yep. All right, so next, God shows Elijah three powerful things. A windstorm that causes an avalanche, uh, an earthquake, and a fire. But Elijah realizes that God's not in any of those. And instead, he hears God in the gentle whisper, uh, and he realizes immediately that God is in that. But he, interestingly enough, he still doesn't learn the lesson that God has for him, because God asks him a second time, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah gives him the same sorry answer that he gave him the first time. All right. Uh, hear his second answer even though it's verbatim of the first one I hear it in a different tone Do you? I think he's humble but he doesn't really know what else to say this is why I came here because of all of this that happens yeah. I don't think it's quite as plain well my assumption is that if God's going to put on a show like this uh, he's trying to teach Elijah something and I'm not quite sure Elijah's learned the lesson yet it has sunk it Yes. Uh, all right, let's go back to the story. Uh, verse 15. Then the Lord told him, Go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. So God basically says here, look, you're missing the point. All right? Uh, I need you to get out there and do the work that I've got for you to do. And if you do that, I will be just as present for you out there as I was on Mount Carmel and as I am here on Mount Sinai. Uh, and I think the point that God is trying to make here is that I'm not just present in the big stuff. I, I'm present in the everyday moments. I'm present in those times when you don't see me, when you can't feel me. There, there's not this concept of sacred space and sacred time where uh, God is in these places, or God is present in these times, God is saying, I am present all the time, whether it's a big thing or a little thing. 
He's not just present, you know, at those moments that we're in church. He's not just present in those moments where we can say, yeah, God, you did good there. I can really see your power. Praise you. Uh, he's not just in the times where we stop everything uh, to just be with him, although that's, that's important. Um, he's in the everyday mundane, i got to get through this stuff just to, make it through the day um, that we all face, you know, and after having raised two and a half kids, I think that's pretty encouraging um, because it seems like between kids fighting and dishes that need to be washed and laundry that's got to be done, there, there's never time to focus on Mount Carmel. Um, in the Middle Ages, there was a monk called uh, named Brother Lawrence, and uh, he decided that uh, he was going to look for God in those everyday moments. He, uh, he was in a monastery, uh, locked away from the rest of humanity, and, uh, you know, we always think that you go to a monastery and the, all the monks do is pray every day, but, you know, they, they got to cook dinner and they got to clean the monastery and they got to feed the chickens and they got to, you know, harvest the crops and, you know, whatever they do for food. Uh, and so all that stuff's got to be done. Um, and so uh, he wanted to see is God, can I see God not just in those moments that I have set aside to pray, but in those moments that I am cooking dinner and washing the dishes. Uh, and, uh, and what he found was that he could, if he took the time to focus on that, uh, to focus on uh, practicing the presence of God. If you're interested, it's a really short book. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Um, and uh, so how do we practice the presence of God? Uh, I'm going to go through uh, four things. Uh, I apologize to Jake because he's probably heard these before um, because I did part of this lesson uh, with the home builders uh, a quarter or two ago. Um, but I thought it was really good and I wanted you guys to at least have part of it. I don't have time to go through all of it. I wish I did. Uh, but I'm just going to hit the highlights. Um, so four things you can do. To practice the presence of God, uh, I didn't come up with these. I'm not that smart. Uh, I got these from Randy Harris. Uh, if you're familiar with Randy Harris, you know he is a, a great theologian. He challenges me with, uh, with his writings. Uh, and so uh, I found these to be very good. All right. So uh, the uh, number one, today I will be incompetent. Uh, and that's really important because if you fail at the rest of them, you've at least got this one to fall back on. Um, but the point is that nothing drives away the presence of God like the illusion of our own spiritual competence. Because um, if you're convinced that you've got everything under control, there's nothing left for God to do. Uh, so the question is, whether you believe that or not. <coughs> you believe the world is in much better hands with God in control or in your incompetent hands. Uh, God, see, God doesn't need our competence. He needs our presence. All right, number two. Today I will be fully present to those in front of me and to God. All right, that's a two-parter, so we'll cover that uh, one at a time. First, I will be fully present to the people in front of me. It's very difficult these days to have anybody's full attention. Uh, I will tell you that I struggle mightily with this whole concept. Don't I, Christy Schwamm? <laughs> uh, I have this automatic reaction that every time my phone dings, I must look at it. Uh, it's got to be important. I promise you it's important. Um, and usually it turns out to be some sports notification that some five-star point guard from Minnesota is trying to decide between Oregon and Notre Dame. <laughs> um, 
when I was in the Air Force, uh, I, I had many opportunities that I, I was in charge of people. And uh, it was very important to me that I took care of those people uh, that worked for me. And that required listening to what they had to say, what was on their mind, what they thought could be improved in their work center, what, uh, you know, what problem they were having, what, whether it was personal or professional. Um, and I will tell you that I don't listen well. Uh, I get so caught up in the work that I have to do and I had planned out that I was going to get done that day. And every time my email dings, I'm like, that's more work that I've got to do. Really need to get back to work. Um, and so you probably understand, though, uh, that the most important ministry that you can do is uh, the ministry that happens on the way to doing what you thought was most important. Um, so I had to work hard at listening to people. Uh, and, and it was really, really hard work for me. And so I spent all day working on that. And then I would come home and struggle to listen to the people that I cared about most. Um, so one of the things that continually impresses and inspires me about Jesus is his ability to focus on the person that's right in front of them to the point that uh, they think that the two of them are the only people on the planet right at that moment. Uh, and what if we took that approach with everyone that we interacted with? Uh, the people that we see in church, the people that are in our life groups, the people we work with, uh, with our kids, with our spouse. How would our world change if that's the way that we interacted with people? Uh, and that's one of the things that I constantly work on because I want to be present with people the same way that Jesus was. Uh, <clears throat> All right, second part, uh, I will be fully present to God. So I want to go back and revisit distractedness for just a second. So if, if you've ever been in a conversation uh, with somebody who is distracted, probably me, um, you know, you, you probably felt frustrated. You know, are they really even paying attention to me, to what I'm trying to say? Um, think about how God must feel when we are distracted with him. Um, but let's not just focus on that. Um, how do you think that affects us when we're trying to interact with God? Um, if we are distracted, you know, we're, we're sitting down trying to do Bible study and uh, every time the phone dings, we're checking our phone, or uh, you know, we're we're we allow our mind to wander while we're trying to to worship Him on Sunday, or while we're praying, or whatever. Uh, how does that affect our relationship with God? You know, we can't truly cultivate that relationship if we are uh, if we are not committed to being. Uh, focused on spending time with him. Um, God may be calling us to some ministry or to change something in our lives, uh, and we're not going to hear him unless we're present with him. Prayer in our hearts and our spiritual antenna high to pick up what he's transmitting. If we're, if we're trying to spend time with God and we're interested in what he's got to say, but we're not paying attention when he speaks, we're going to miss it, and it might be something important. All right, um, number three. Today I will be the Christ to those I interact with. And this may seem pretty self-evident, but it's important that we uh, recognize it, and it's important that we, uh, that we be deliberate about it. And I'm not just talking about uh, living a godly life. That's important but that's not really what I'm talking about here. Uh, that tends to conjure up images of being holy and blameless and uh, 
that's important, but uh, what I'm trying to get across here uh, is that this is about showing the people in the world around us uh, what Jesus would look like if he were in our particular circumstance and station in life. Um, so for me, you know, what would Jesus look like if he were a middle-aged, post-military, almost done with parenting guy that wishes he were still a kid? Um, you know, some of you, what, what would Jesus the parent look like? What would Jesus the grandparent look like? Um, and if he were in your position, interacting with the people that you're interacting with, what would Jesus look like? Um, the, uh, I'll, I'll give an example of this. And if he were here, he wouldn't want me to talk about him, but he's not here to defend himself, so I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I want to talk about Matt Elliott. Uh, now, Matt and I don't see eye to eye on everything. First of all, Matt doesn't recognize my great talent for worship planning. <laughs> I will I will talk to him and say, hey, Matt, I've got this great idea. And he'll say, no, I don't like that. And he'll go off and do his own thing. Um, but I have never seen anyone who is as good at championing the little guy, and I don't mean that pejoratively, I've never seen anybody that was good at championing the little guy as Matt Elliott. Um, it's Matt who has championed women to feel uh, appreciated uh, in, our, in our church and in our worship. Um, it's Matt that has demonstrated how much he loves and appreciates people of different uh, races and ethnicities and backgrounds. Uh, and it's and he has driven the uh, the conversation to a great deal, or at least jump started it to a great deal among the leadership in the church. Um, and I appreciate that because uh, not that I don't care about that stuff, I do. I'm just not good at it like he is. Um, and so I appreciate that he is able to do that in a way that I'm not and challenge me to be better than I am. Because um, he shows me what Jesus would look like and how he would treat those in those situations if Jesus uh, were here in, in that situation. Okay, um, number four. Today I will see the Christ in others. It's not enough for us to be the Christ. We need to see it in others. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 25. We are almost done. Hang with me. For, starting in verse 41. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. This passage used to scare me, and to be honest, it still kind of does uh, to some extent because it challenges me to be better than I am. But listen to what Jesus is really saying here. Jesus says, when you see hurting, needy, even sinful people, I want you to see me. Uh, but what does that mean? What does that look like when we have people that don't look like us? as part of our, our church. Um, what does that look like when you have people with same-sex attraction and, and they're okay with that? Uh, what does love first in a God-honoring way look like? What does that mean in a practical sense? And, and I don't know, but that's where 
practicing the presence of God, we begin to become attuned to that and hear what God might have to say about how we interact with people uh, in their particular circumstance so that they know that they are loved dearly by God, uh, but also hear what God may have to say, okay? And that applies to us too, so that we hear what God may have to say to us that we need to change in our own lives. Um, all right, let's close it down. There's a lot we can learn when we see God work in big ways. And if he's trying to get our attention, then we better listen. But there may be times we don't feel God's presence and we just want to run to Mount Sinai. And the cure for that is practicing the presence of God. So we talked about four ways we can do that. Number one, today I will be incompetent. Number two, today I will be fully present to the people in front of me and to God. Number three, today I will see the Christ, or I will be the Christ to those I interact with. Number four, today I will see the Christ in others. And God promises that he is with us in every place and at every time, not just on Mount Carmel, but in the everyday grind of life. God promises that if we will do the ministry that he has given us to do, he will be present with us and he will, uh, he will support us and do great things through us. All right. Any closing comments? Good lesson. All right, let's, uh, let's close out in prayer. God, thank you so much for the people that are, that are here tonight. Father, I, I pray a blessing on, on each person and each family that's represented here. Father, may we, may we realize that you are present with us uh, at all times. Even if we can't see you or feel you, Father, we, I pray that you will, uh, that we will focus on finding you in those times when it is difficult to see you, knowing that you are present with us and that you have given us ministry to do if we would just uh, look and see it. Remove the scales from our eyes and help, help us to see the ministry that you have uh, before us. Help us to see people the way that you see them. Father, give us wisdom uh, and presence to interact with those people in a way that honors you and it shows them that they are dearly loved. Father, be with us as we leave here tonight and go about our, our daily lives, our daily grind. And Father, we, we pray that, uh, that going from here, that that daily grind will be filled, filled with a little more presence uh, of you, or at least our awareness of that presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.